Well, thank you so much for having me. This is uh, a great pleasure and an honor to be here uh, and back in Oxford. And also, uh, it's been a treat and a very educational treat for me to spend time with uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, who I've never really had a chance to appreciate properly. And this is always uh, a good opportunity to really uh, read an author closely. Uh, so, uh, for a bit of a framing of what I'd like to share today, uh, this is really uh, a short study of some texts in uh, what we now call the meditations, as you've been hearing about uh, Ta Ace Heo Tu, or Heo Tan. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, as I was reading the text and uh, also recently reading some uh, literature on uh, ancient Greek and Roman ideas uh, of the self, uh, including Richard's book, uh, and also what Christopher Gill has been uh, writing recently, and I know he'll be here in person, so he'll be able to say that part much more eloquently. Uh, uh, some ideas occurred to me that I, I thought would be uh, interesting to share for what Marcus can contribute uh, to this discussion of ancient ideas of selfhood. Uh, and before I, I say anything too elaborate about that, um, the, it's very simply, I, I've been interested in uh, peeling apart uh, some of Marcus's uh, third personal language on the one hand about what kind of person we could or should be, a sort of uh, a normative picture of the self, uh, from some of his first and second personal language, uh, which, as I'll be suggesting, gives uh, less of a normative and more of a descriptive sense of the self or himself as he finds himself uh, at the time that he's writing. Um, in a sense, this introduces us to an interesting tension uh, in the meditations between the private and public spheres in general. Uh, so. The very first text uh, on the handout, uh, in a slightly playful way, uh, sets that tension down. Uh, continue straight ahead, uh, Marcus writes to himself, following your private nature and the common nature, the idea and the koine, mia de empaterun tutone hehados, one is the way of both, something like this. Uh, that's somewhat fair, because there's nothing quite like the meditations. They are, uh, so to speak, idios poia, to make a stoic pun, uh, addressed to individual circumstances and almost by definition unique. Uh, they ring of solitude, but like the emperor who yearned for privacy, uh, they were pressed into public service, tracing a winding path from perhaps Marcus's last camp in Vienna to a press in Renaissance Zurich and from there to a massive popular posterity. And perhaps, uh, as Peter Brunt suggested, they were never meant to be published. Uh, they might represent the fruit of the kind of writing for oneself that Epictetus somewhat surprisingly ascribes to Socrates uh, as a replacement for the sort of cross-examination of one's own soul when no conversation partners can be found at hand. Uh, and I'll read a little bit of the passage of Epictetus that could be cited in this connection. And he says, what then? Did not Socrates write? Uh, some interlocutor says, and Epictetus replies, yes, who wrote as much as he did, but how? Since he could not have always at hand someone to test his judgments or to be tested by him in turn, he was in the habit of testing and examining himself 
and was always in a pragmatic way testing out some particular intuition or forethought, prolepsis. That's how a philosopher writes. But now, will you go off and make an exhibition of your compositions that has published them, uh, which Epictetus goes on to ridicule in, uh, in some cases, very nearly the same language that Marcus uses when he ridicules his own ambitions to uh, publication or sharing his work. Uh, despite this resulting atmosphere of privacy, it does seem possible critically to get to grips with Marcus as literature. So in a subtle way to carry on the pun with Idios Poyon, he was also writing koinos from the start. Uh, what he says is in the shared language of second century Hellenic paideia, uh, especially whenever, again, as Brunt put it, he has the vigor and perhaps the leisure to express himself as best he can, and Fronto's pupil comes to the fore. Uh, so, for example, when he addresses his uh, psuche, uh, and Richard Rutherford has given wonderful examples uh, of how this uh, reflects classical tradition, uh, the address to the Thumos, Odysseus's or Medea's, uh, when Marcus interrogates his habits and emotions or impulses and thoughts with gestures to Homer, Euripides, Socrates, only the tip of the iceberg and Parkinson's index, so even if Marcus is his own audience, he's a learned and cultured author writing for a learned and cultured audience of one, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps with a single cogent cause or purpose. So you could say here is a person in a text that's both public and private in some sense, both koinos and idios, adapting to private effect uh, all sorts of literary patterns that are shared. Since the resulting text does seem to blend the private and public, or the whole and the part, in a strong sort of way, uh, many writers about Marcus had really eloquently articulated the effect. It's part of his charm. Uh, so Pierre Do, for example, in the Inner Citadel, concluded like this. Uh, we feel a highly particular emotion when we enter, as it were, into the spiritual intimacy of a soul's secrets, and are thus directly associated with the efforts of a man who is trying to do what in the last analysis we are all trying to do, to live in complete consciousness and lucidity, to give each of our instants its fullest intensity, and to give meaning to our entire life. Marcus is talking to himself, but we get the impression that he is talking to each one of us. So one road then to public and private selves, mia dem pateron tutum e hodos. And this is the theme that I'd like to explore. Uh, the more specific way that I'd like to look at this sort of uh, tension or interplay between the public and private in Marcus is, uh, as I said at the beginning, to divide up somewhat informally, the interlocutors of Marcus's self-interrogation, which has uh, been done before much more exhaustively than I can do today, but I hope this will be suggestive. And the division that I'm interested in is, as I said before, between what I'd like to call for today, that you might help me with the language, I think, uh, a normative self assimilated to the teacher uh, when Marcus sets up a dialogue on the model of Epictetus's discourses or a Platonic dialogue, uh, and a descriptive self assimilated to the pupil. And I use normative here just to label what Marcus seems to want to be, or in a sort of third personal way, how he describes an ideal human being, what we might all aspire uh, to be, what it would be to be good at being human. We achieved a sort of uh, final end of stoic oikeosis. And on the other hand, descriptive, just to label who he finds himself to be, which is often much less polished in a literary way, when he just says, sometimes he retorts to himself as uh, this wonderful passage in I think book five saying, well, I don't really want to get up early in the morning. And then there's this very nice sort of uh, objective as in saying not to over label it normative way of saying, well, that's the work of a human being. You're a good human being, a part of the cosmos. You have to get up early. And then he retorts to himself, you know, I'm tired. Uh, so this sort of, but I'm tired retort is a, a nice way of picking out 
this. What I'd like to talk about is a descriptive self here. It's not often very polished or very formalized, or it's almost pre-theoretical sometimes, but not always. The de defining characteristic of uh, this normative side of Marcus's portrayal of a good human person or self seems to me, as I'll be arguing today, to be a high degree of wholeness and unity, uh, the product of a sort of high degree of tension, uh, tenor in a technical way in Stoicism, uh, the result of a process of henosis. Uh, this is the kind of person we should be, and it's a very rich kind of sense of wholeness or henosis, I think. It's inner and outer in a mutually entailing kind of way, personal and social, uh, diachronic, that is through time and synchronic all at once. On the other hand, the defining characteristic of his descriptive self, uh, as I'm calling it, is in a way partiality and fragmentation. So when uh, his teacher's voice, his normative voice comes in, uh, it's to uh, reposition the feeling he's had, like, well, I'm tired, uh, to be something partial, uh, as opposed to the wholeness that he would be seeking to achieve, the wholeness that might belong uh, to the sage. Of course, as a good reader of Epictetus, who he had enjoyed so much since introduced to him by Junius Rusticus, uh, he has a very strong sort of Epictetan sense of achieving this normative ideal of uh, exercising his own choices to become whole. One passage that's exemplary of this kind of division, which I haven't put on the handout, but just to read a little bit of it, is uh, the beginning of Book 10, uh, and in Hammond's translation, which is the one that I had, it begins, My soul, uh, this is one of those Opsuke passages, will you ever be good, simple, individual, bare, brighter than the body that covers you? and so on and so forth, but uh, the simple here uh, and in other passages, I think, is consistent with the idea that he's looking for a sense of wholeness. There's a quest for unity here. Uh, a few other points I'll try to bring up as I, as I talk. Uh, one is that I think when Marcus is expressing these sorts of normative ideas about what it is to be a whole human being or a unity, it's very often in third personal terms uh, what Anthony Long picking up on uh, some ideas in Nagel about uh, qualia and subjectivity and talks about as the objective self or what Christopher Gill identifies as objective participant language. But I think in the latter persona, the sort of descriptive persona, if you like the student's persona in him, we get quite a bit of first personal and second personal language, which is associated with some other features of subjectivity, or so I'll, I'll argue. Um, I also think that the two interlocutors in Marcus that I'm trying to peel apart carve up between them many of the important features of uh, the individual self. Uh, so the, the normative person has uh, diachronic and synchronic unity. Uh, this is a person who is a whole now and was yesterday the person that he or she will be tomorrow. Uh, but on the other hand, the descriptive person, which is often uh, the one singled out in Marcus's use of the view from above, uh, the one that's a little piece of flesh or a little fragment of the moment who has to recognize that they're limited to the present. Uh, this person lacks some of those kinds of unity. Uh, again, the normative person is unified by a single aim in several passages that I'd like to talk about both inwardly and outwardly, but it's to the descriptive self that a lot of the features of a, a post-Cartesian kind of individual come out. So uh, the phenomenological feelings of pain and fear, uh, even irrational hopes, and desires all go to the man in the moment, uh, this descriptive person. But uh, one of the points I'd like to make is I think consistently across these different pictures, the notion of wholeness or unity or henosis might be, at least to me, the most fruitful way of picking apart these ideas and differentiating the two. Uh, 
So for a bit of a, a roadmap to what's uh, on the handout from here, over the paper uh, in two parts, where part one is uh, the longer part, I'd like to begin by exploring four features of Marcus's so-called normative self, uh, and the four are, are numbered one to four. The first is uh, its essential association with mind over matter on the first page of the handout, which has been much debated with respect to Marcus's uh, school orthodoxy and so on. Uh, second, number two, on page two, uh, the freedom of the person to constitute himself or herself as a rational agent and not just as an animal or with a very loose kind of coherence like a stone. Uh, third, uh, beginning on page three, uh, the recognition, very famous, I think, in Marcus, uh, and much more emphasized perhaps in an Epictetus, uh, this sort of recognition of oneself as an integral whole within the integral whole of the universe, what Jonathan Barnes talked about once as being a partial whole. Uh, and fourth, uh, the godlikeness of this person, the fact that it's uh, to be a dime owner, to keep your dime owner in good condition, uh, also something taken over from Epictetus. And then uh, what I've called part five here uh, will explore a sort of synthesis of these elements in characterizing Marcus's ideal self. Also on page five, very conveniently, it all lines up. It's probably pronoia. So obviously, <laughs> we're not in a universe of atoms, thank goodness. Uh, and six, very briefly, I'll talk a, a little bit, but I won't say much because it's so famous and everybody will know this best, I think, about how Marcus's different spiritual exercises can help him. Uh, and then part two of, of the paper will be much briefer. Uh, page seven and eight, I'd just like to give some examples of what I was talking about as a sort of descriptive self, Marcus, as he finds himself uh, more partial and uh, in the moment sort of person. So uh, coming to part one, to talk a bit about uh, some passages where I think we find Marcus's picture of what a human person could or should be, the normative picture as I'm calling it. Uh, to come to the first, uh, Marcus's interest in distinguishing and highlighting nous, or the hegemonicon, uh, in contrast to other features of his person that are physical, surprisingly including not only sarks or flesh, um, but also pneuma, uh, which uh, it is quite reasonably suggested. If you went back to Chrysippus as uh, one of the most systematic thinkers of the early Stoa, you would find that uh, well, pneuma, of course, we are all sort of holes, uh, psychophysical holes, but there's nothing wrong with saying that uh, pneuma is what we are in some sense, the seat of our intellect, perhaps identical with our intellect, whereas Marcus seems to somewhat surprisingly make this tripartition and peel off noose, valuing these mental facets of his person at the expense of the physical aspects. Uh, passages that take this kind of tack, like uh, what I put on the handout is 2 2, book 2, chapter 2, and again, uh, book 12, chapter 3, sections 1 to 2, uh, to the first beginning, whatever it is, this being of mine is made up of flesh, breath, and a directing mind, uh, with uh, little diminutives like pneumation to make the point that uh, this is not an overly valued part of himself compared to the hegemonicon. And then again, 12.3, uh, the same tri uh, tripartition were constituted from three things, somation, uh, pneumation, and nous. Uh, of which only the third is in a full sense your own, curios son. These sorts of passages have sometimes been read as evidence of a kind of uh, unstoical dualism in Marcus's psychology and physics, uh, a reversion away from stoic monism or, uh, or psychophysical holism uh, in favor of a more part-based 
kind of conception that we meet uh, among uh, near contemporaries in Plutarch and Galen, a kind of milestone on the road to Neoplatonism, perhaps. Uh, there are uh, quite a few other passages which I won't read through, but I've, I've put down on the handout in case we'd like to discuss them in more detail uh, through page two, uh, where Marcus emphasizes as uh, in 1024 uh, that uh, the directing mind or hegemonicon shouldn't be too interfused and welded to the flesh so that it sways uh, with its tides in Hammond's translation. Uh, but that seems a little bit uh, surprising if, in fact, as a as Stoic who is not a dualist about uh, mind and matter, well, what else should it be except for fused uh, and welded to the flesh? Uh, again, the sort of devaluing language in 533. Remember that all lies within the limits of uh, all that lies within the limits of our poor carcass and our little breath. Uh, again, now Matthew is neither yours nor in your power, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'll come back to 316 in a minute, the last passage on page 2. So uh, if we grant for the benefit of the doubt for the moment that this does seem in a way unstoic or unorthodox, uh, even if there are certainly strong antecedents for it in Epictetus, who's also been accused of a similar kind of unorthodoxy sometimes, uh, there are different ways we can interpret this. Um, John Rist, for example, uh, found evidence here and especially in other passages that reflected Marcus's openness to an Epicurean worldview without providence, uh, that Marcus perhaps feels Stoicism as a set of ethical beliefs or dogmas, almost a religion uh, or a philosophy of life, not as it was for Zeno and Chrysippus, a philosophy proper. Uh, and Risk goes on uh, to suggest that it's a religion devoid of any significant scholastic underpinnings. Um, other interpretations have also been offered. Uh, John Cooper, for example, in 2004, uh, wondered whether Marcus might uh, simply be somewhat confused to think that he could maintain an Epicurean physics, say, or uh, an ontological view that was broadly Platonist, while also ethically uh, living in a Stoic world. Uh, Julia Annis argued that he just recognizes his own lack of competence in physics and logic, uh, but that he uh, knows that he's competent in ethics. Uh, or perhaps he wouldn't say that, he'd be more modest, but it's, he's more comfortable talking about ethics. So he's just, uh, suspends belief, if you like, uh, maintains a healthy FLK about these other domains of philosophy. Uh, but however we do interpret that, uh, and I'll come back to one last and I think important interpretation in a moment, the crucial point or the thrust of the passages seems to be, uh, that everything physical comes and goes and is not up to us, not at himming, but mind alone we can control as our own responsibility. So Book 5, Chapter 33 on page 2 is a, a clear example of that. Uh, only uh, the hegemonicon, only our uh, choices, our management of our impulses and impressions is epi-soi. So because that seems like the thrust of these passages, it's been suggested, uh, I think, in the case of Epictetus by Long and Inwood, and in the case of Marcus by Christopher Gill, that what's really going on in these sorts of passages isn't really psychology at all, uh, but ethics, backed by a powerful sort of rhetoric drawing on the Platonist language, so that Marcus is not, after all, offering a sort of more dualistic account of how our psychosomatic self holds together, after all, uh, but he's using strong dualistic language to help focus our attention on what we can control, and this doesn't have to have implications for his actual physical and psychological views. 
So uh, Gill writes, for example, that at least in some of these passages, uh, Marcus is using Platonic-style dualistic language as a kind of rhetoric to underline ethical Stoic ideas that are central to his project in the Meditations. Uh, and elsewhere, too, uh, that when Marcus contrasts the hegemonicon uh, or noose with bodily aspects of the self, this is a striking way of expressing the idea that what matters is our natural human capacity for exercising agency in a way that carries forth our ethical development. Um, because these sorts of passages conclude by underlining that Marcus should use his agency well or appropriately, uh, rather than finally saying, well, now we've sorted out what the psyche is or what the self is or something like this, uh, that it's just like if I were sort of focusing your attention, you were, you were doing a math test and you just couldn't stop thinking about poetry or something like this. And I told you to start thinking about math. I wasn't actually making broad statements about the way the curriculum should be organized or anything like this. I was just trying to encourage you to do a good job on this test uh, like this. And it would be overreading it to see some ontological or psychological significance. And I leave 316 for last, uh, also on page two, because I think Gil makes a particularly strong case for this view uh, from book three, chapter 16. Uh, we have the same sort of tripartition at the beginning, it looks like, so mapsuke and noose. Uh, to the body belong aisthesis, uh, to the soul hormai, and to the noose dogmata. Uh, but the message, as Gil says, is drawn out in the last half of the passage that uh, Marcus, surprisingly enough, from these earlier passages we've seen here, doesn't go on to value what happens in the mind as if that's good or what we really are, do this sort of essentializing move that we've seen, uh, but the mind, uh, uh, the sort of behavior of the mind is criticized as well. Uh, we share our mind with uh, all sorts of other people who are not desirable role models. Uh, so Marcus writes here, what appears appropriate action uh, as the mind is our guide is shared with those who do not believe in the gods, those who betray their country, those who get up to anything behind closed doors. So if all else is held in common with the categories mentioned above, it follows that the defining characteristic of the good person is to love and embrace whatever happens along his thread of fate, and so on and so forth. Uh, what goes on in the passage it sounds very much like Marcus's sort of normative picture of what a good person would be, but we've just been told clearly that that's not simply being identified with your mind, uh, not just to be your noose, but uh, the sort of ethical point is separated quite clearly here from the psychological or ontological point, and that seems to support uh, what Gill is saying. Uh, I'd like to return to this um, below. There's uh, a few ways one could respond to this, I suppose. One is that Marcus in several places still seems to uh, demand that doing uh, physiologane or thinking as a physicist uh, is important to being a good person, so we, we couldn't just take for granted that he didn't think that was very interesting or could be fully detached from ethics. Uh, but the main point I'd like to make going forward is without necessarily resisting what Gill has taken from this passage, that I think it fits into a broader theme. And from internally in the text, we can find other ways that Marcus speaks uh, about the sort of normativity uh, of the kind of person we should be that puts in context this sort of uh, almost dualistic talk about being a mind and maybe draws out the way in which it's both ethical and also can fit into a stoic physical framework. So uh, leaving 316 for the moment to come back to, the second uh, general point I wanted to raise after 
this this talk about ideally ourselves being our minds uh, is uh, how Marcus talks about our ideally being free and reasoning agents and not uh, animals or puppets. Uh, there's a, an excellent study, I think, by Sylvia Berryman in Oxford Studies in Ancient Philosophy in 2010 about Marcus's talk of puppets, which is very interesting because she suggests that uh, whereas uh, readers often think uh, his, his language picks up on Plato's talk in the laws about a god pulling our strings, uh, it, it doesn't in most cases. Rather, uh, it sounds like he's uh, using automata, contemporary automata, as a model whose strings are internal in some sense. And the idea is really uh, one of being mechanistic uh, or even deterministic as opposed to having any sort of uh, free will. But coming back to that in a minute, uh, some of these different passages where Marcus speaks about the part of us that is free uh, echo the passages where he talks about the part of us uh, that is in the mind. One very uh, uh, important passage is Book 10, Chapter 38, uh, where he writes, remember that what pulls the strings is that part of us hidden inside. Uh, so taught neurospastun, the part that pulls the strings, uh, and part isn't actually in the Greek, but that which pulls the strings taught end on, uh, is hidden inside. That is the power, uh, to act. That is the principle of life, uh, that, uh, one must say or could say is really anthropos. Never give any equal thought to the vessel which contains it or the organs built around it. These are an instrument like an axe. So different ways, again, of picking out one facet or aspect of his person, uh, which would suggest that the talk about the mind before might be identified with the string puller here, uh, the puppeteer. But uh, it's important to note that this is very uncharacteristic in Marcus. In the other passages where he brings up uh, string pulling and puppets, uh, he doesn't do that to our advantage as the string puller, but we're the puppet. Uh, so, for example, some of the other passages I've given at the top of page uh, 3, uh, like 316, 628, 73, 729, and 1219, seem like the much more common case, where he uh, notes that response to the puppet strings of impulse is shared with wild beasts, uh, and death relieves us from the puppet strings of impulse, which looks like it's identified with uh, service to the flesh in the translation here. Uh, any sort of uh, social goods or empty pomp of processions and so on, our puppets dancing on their strings, which we shouldn't snort at, and so on and so forth. Uh, what makes the difference between these passages, which seem like the familiar ones, representing us as, uh, at least in our sort of lower, less coherent or uh, less normative selves, uh, automata, what makes the difference between that and the unconventionally optimistic uh <laughs> Book 10, Chapter 38, that we started out with at the bottom of page 2. Uh, it's the possibility that we could transcend the kind of activity that we share with beasts, dancing on the strings of impulse, and that we could act only as befits a rationally constituted uh, whole person. So uh, this sort of language, uh, I think, shows that uh, recognizing uh, the sort of difference between the descriptive and the normative helps here too to tease apart these two more than uh, other approaches to the apparent tension. Um, 363 on page 3, I've just given a few examples of this sort of talk. Uh, partway through 363 in the translation, Marcus writes, so you, I repeat, must simply and freely choose the better and hold to it. He retorts to himself that better is what's uh, beneficial or convenient, simpharon. Uh, well, if to your benefit as a rational being, hos logico, 
uh, adopt it, go for it, but if simply to your benefit as a zoan, reject it and stick to your judgment without fanfare. Only make sure that your scrutiny uh, is sound. So this is uh, the division between what is beneficial to us as a rational being and what's beneficial to us as an animal who could be dancing to the puppet strings of impulse. Uh, 3.9 gives the same sort of idea uh, that it is uh, most important of all to ensure that our directing mind or hegemonicon only entertains judgments uh, that uh, agree uh, with the nature or constitution of a rational being, uh, logiku zou, and uh, 511 pulls out the same uh, sort of division. Uh, here too you see that kind of contrast, uh, almost the essentializing talk, where we could be uh, in our soul or in our directing mind uh, like a despot or a child or an animal, or for that matter a woman or a boy, uh, but in fact the kind of soul that we want uh, is the one that is the soul of uh, the rational uh, human being, uh, the kind of uh, person who is whole and uh, constituted as uh, a rationally constituted whole whole animal. So those passages together, I think, are, are very similar to the ones uh, that discuss this essentialism about mind over matter, um, but shows that what we're talking about there is really an instruction about how to constitute ourselves as rational wholes or as rational agents. Um, and uh, just as a side note, as Berryman points out in reflecting on these sorts of passages, these puppeteering passages in general, the question in becoming our own puppeteer could be interpreted as reshaping our own constitutions or reshaping ourselves so that like Chrysippus's cylinder, uh, we, well, we roll rather than not rolling or vice versa. So we can reshape ourselves uh, potentially in quite a physical way. This doesn't have to be unstoical or dualistic. It's just about how we constitute ourselves, whether we are logikos or not. So that was a second theme that I wanted to draw out uh, as a, a facet of the, the normative self or the ideal kind of person. Um, the third is talk of us as ideally agents of the common social good or limbs of the whole, a particularly famous uh, piece of both political theory and ethics in Marcus. One of uh, uh, the great expressions of this, I think, is when uh, Jonathan Barnes quotes Alexander Pope alongside Marcus, uh, a little bit from Pope's essay on man, what if the foot ordained the dust to tread, or hand to toil aspired to be the head? What if the head, the eye, or ear repined to serve mere edgins to the ruling mind, just as absurd for any part to claim to be another in this general frame, just as absurd to mourn the tasks or pains the great directing mind of all ordains. All are but parts of one stupendous whole, whose body nature is, and God the soul. And th this is, uh, as Barnes points out, the kind of general image that Marcus reverts to again and again uh, to illustrate his sense of his ideal self as a whole, integral with nature. And I've given some passages illustrating this uh, on the following pages, from page three downward. Uh, to one, for example, uh, uh, which I haven't actually put on the handout, I'll just read briefly. I've reflected that the nature of the offender himself is akin to my own, not a kinship of blood or seed, but a sharing in the same mind and the same fragment of divinity, like two limbs of the same body. Uh, 
two nine, which I have put on the whole uh, on the handout. I haven't put it on the whole. I think. Always remember what the nature of the whole is, what my own nature is, the relation of this nature to that, what kind of part it is of what kind of whole, hapoyu to halu, uh, and so on and so forth. These passages together showing how using your mind and identifying with your mind in a sense and with your rational agency uh, can also be described as becoming uh, part of or uh, yourself becoming a whole and becoming part of the whole of nature. Uh, 7.13.2, rational beings uh, collectively have the same relation as the various limbs of an organic unity. Uh, they were created for a single cooperative purpose. The notion of this will strike you more forcefully if you keep on saying to yourself, I am the limb of the composite body of rational beings. So that sort of capacity for rational self-constitution we talked about uh, has to do with our being a functional part of the whole. And I put more passages just in translation below to illustrate this. But it's possible to fall short of this ideal, uh, this sort of normative ideal, and Marcus talks about this as well. In fact, it seems that many of us do fall short of this kind of ideal. Uh, for example, in 2.16, he says, the soul of a man harms itself when it becomes a separate growth, a sort of tumor on the universe. Uh, 4.29, which I put down on the handout, uh, if one who does not recognize the contents of the universe is a stranger in it, no less a stranger is the one who fails to recognize what happens in it, a tumor on the universe, if he stands aside and separates himself from the principle of our common nature, a social splinter, nice translation, I think, if he splits his own soul away from the soul of all rational beings, uh, which is a unity, uh, an important point. So uh, the Greek there, teston, logikon, aposkizdon, mias, who says. And there are a few other passages that illustrate this as well, which I've just cited. Uh, but it's possible to come back to this state of wholeness with the cosmos through these aforementioned projects that we've discussed. Uh, 834 is a bit more optimistic. Suppose you've made yourself an outcast from the unity of nature. You were born a part of it, but now you've cut yourself off. Yet here lies the paradox that it's open to you to rejoin that unity. Hati uh, uh which could be obviously put a little bit differently too, to achieve a kind of henosis. As a reader of Plotinus, obviously, I spring to the occasion. Uh, uh, but to, to unify yourself. No other part has this privilege from God to come together again once it's been separated and cut away. So uh, this is a little bit suggestive, and I'll come back to this in a few minutes, that uh, to act in accordance with the interest of the whole uh, just is to constitute ourselves as rational beings, my second general normative theme, uh, by focusing on the use of our controlling minds uh, and trying in a, a sort of ethical way, as Gil puts it, to identify with them, the first of these themes. The fourth and last, uh, as we, we rattle through these, of what I take to be the sort of uh, ways of normatively talking about selfhood, uh, is uh, the use of language about godlikeness. Maybe godlikeness isn't the best way to put it, um, but this is the sort of language that Epictetus uses as well when he says that we are fragments of God, or carry God, or the daimon in ourselves. Epictetus says you're carrying God around, you poor thing, and you don't know it. Uh, or Zeus has presented to each person a daimon uh, who does not sleep and cannot be misled. Uh, and this kind of language, although uh, Marcus can be seen as a little less optimistic, maybe, than Epictetus is about being a friend uh, to God, still is very important in Marcus's idea of, of what we should be as human persons. Uh, 
some passages that bring this out. Again, I put on the handout, uh, like uh, 845, wherever I land, uh, I'll keep the daimon within me happy, uh, satisfied, that is, if action and if attitude and action follow its own constitution, uh, te idea again, uh, or 217, that what what is philosophy? Well, that is, on page 5 of the handout, to keep the daimon within us inviolate and free from harm, master of pleasure and pain, uh, doing nothing uh, at random or without aim, truth or integrity, and independent of others' action or failure to act. Uh, other passages, too, that I haven't put on the handout are very clear about this. Marcus is interested in 212, for example, in how man touches God with what part of his being. Uh, or 213, he criticizes uh, less successful human beings as failing to realize that it's enough if you can only concentrate on the divinity within yourself and give it true service. Uh, and there are many other passages like this as well, where there's strong rhetoric saying that a person walks with God's support, uh, or anything like this, when he is behaving like a rational and social being. Book 3, Chapter 7 is another where that said. Uh, this success doesn't require recognition or appreciation. It's important to stress. Uh, 767, the last under section 4 on page 5, uh, mentions this at the very end. It's wholly possible to become a divine man, Theon, Andra, uh, without anybody's recognition. Uh, so, uh, the conviction that, uh, trying to become a, a good, fully successful, whole human being, rationally constituted, using one's mind uh, in this appropriate stoic way, uh, and functioning as a, a good limb of the whole body, uh, is somehow to be a friend of God, to serve the God within, to purify the God within, uh, in a sense, to be a divine person. So a few words about putting those four together. Particularly, uh, I'd like to stress the idea that inner and outer unity in the sort of picture of the normative self uh, are mutually entailing for Marcus, as looks to me. Uh, some of the passages that I've given for this under section 5, uh, I think, uh, are, are pretty suggestive of the links between these four, or at least I hope they are. So 4.4 uh, four mentions uh, if the intelligent part, ta noe ron, or the mind, is coin on for all of us, then we have a reason also in common, that which makes us rational beings. So that would be a link between my uh, parts one and two, for example. Uh, seven, nine, the next passage uh, on page five, I think illustrates this as well, after the point that all things are meshed together and a sacred bond unites them, a very stoic sort of physical thesis uh, concludes, uh, there is one common reason in all intelligent beings, picking up the theme from 4.4, uh, if indeed there's also one perfection of all cognate beings sharing uh, in the same reason, in the same logos. So again, the wholeness with the cosmos is in a sense uh, associated with our all being rational or all having logos. Again, a good stoic theme. The link between inner and outer unity is especially picked up, and I think this is a very striking point or one that I'd like to stress. In 4.27, uh, the contrast between uh, the Epicurean and Stoic worldviews, uh, concluding with this point that either there's a cosmos, which is ordered, uh, or there's a stew, kukeon, uh, which is not an entirely flattering depiction of a more Epicurean view. Uh, how could a sort of private order uh, subsist in you, in soy cosmos, if there is disorder in the whole? Uh, 
which seems like an important uh, connection between inner and outer unity. The same goes for 9.23. If any action of yours does not have a direct or indirect relation to the social end, it pulls your life apart and destroys its unity. It is a kind of sedition. So uh, one's own personal unity uh, is pulled apart in some way by failing to act in accord with the unity of the whole. There's this sort of important uh, mutual entailment between the two, inner and outer unity. It's also a diachronic kind of unity, as I mentioned at the beginning, through time. Uh, 1121 is an example of this, using the language of a unified skopos. So uh, the person uh, without one and the same aim in life, coming to the top of page 6, uh, the person without one and the same aim in life cannot himself say one and the same throughout his life. Uh, this maxim is incomplete unless you add what sort of aim that should be. Judgments vary of the whole range of various things taken by the majority to be goods. Uh, also a very stoic point, but one category commands a universal judgment, and that is the good of the community. It follows that the aim we should set ourselves is a social aim, the benefit of our fellow citizens. A man directing all his own impulses to this end will be consistent in all his actions, and therefore the same man throughout. Ia ha autos estai. So again, by identifying uh, our goals ethically, our aim, our skopos, with uh, the goal of uh, all humanity and the world, tahalon uh, or tahen, achieving a kind of henosis, uh, this is also our henosis or our unity from the beginning to the end of our lives. So the consistency of personal identity isn't just a sort of happenstance feature of the self as we find it for Marcus, but something we have to work at, something we have to use different exercises to obtain and achieve. And there's a, a great deal of talk, uh, one of the most common uh, little injunctions I find in meditations is this comment not to do anything uh, at random or without aim. We've seen a few of those, but it's certainly one of the factors in himself that Marcus especially tries to resist. So these have been uh, some reflections on how Marcus seems to me to talk about uh, his ideal self, picking up on uh, work that others who have done who have read it more closely. Um, but I, I think these four features once put together in a synthesis give us a, a helpful picture of this, uh, of, of his normative sense of what a, a good human being would be. Uh, and I think that the sense of wholeness or unity or henosis, and not just any old henosis or tenor, for those who have done a bit of stoic physics, not just the kind of hexes shared by stones, which are only loose unities or bones, not just the kind of fusus that unites plants, not even just the kind of uh, impulsive links that unite animals, uh, but the logos or noose uh, or pneuma that unites us as rational beings, that's the kind of unity that we're aiming for, that gives us synchronic, diachronic unity, self-reflection, and other factors that Marcus thinks are important and that he would like to find in himself, along with the ability to get up early in the morning. Uh, I'd like more briefly, uh, I know we started a little bit late, but I don't want to go too late, so I'd like more briefly to say a bit about the descriptive picture of the self, as I put it at the beginning, which may be over-reading this a little bit, uh, and then see if I can put the two together for discussion. So I'm going to pass here over, but I put on the handout in case we want to come back to them, some examples of Marcus's uh, 
so-called spiritual exercises, the sorts of cases that uh, have been especially drawn attention to. Marcus is full of these wonderful exercises for uh, um, arriving at a, a more sort of stoic tranquility. This is a paradigm case, it seems, a philosophy as a way of life, as Pierre Do put it. Um, uh, and I, I don't want to talk about them too much because others can talk about them much better uh, than I can. But some of the, the great cases uh, are like 636 on page 6. Uh, Asia, Europe are mere nooks of the universe. Every ocean is a drop. Mount Athos, a spadeful of earth. The whole of present time is a pinprick of eternity. All things are tiny, quickly changed, evanescent. Uh, so much great rhetorical, beautiful literary language like this is used just to fire us up, to realize, as Barack Obama would say, the fierce urgency of now, that we must act now, we must change ourselves now. Henosis cannot wait until the 2016 election that has to be done right now, uh, and, and so on. So not, uh, this, is, this is beautiful stuff, and I, I don't want to go into it too much, but uh, this, uh, this sort of dying of the mind, as he puts it in 516, uh, is, I think, associated with bringing ourselves from the descriptive state that I'm about to talk about towards the normative state that I just have talked about, towards Marcus's picture of sagehood. And the wonderful thing about uh, the ta ace heoton is that they give us such a clear picture of how Marcus struggles with and tries to use these kinds of exercises, which by then are already uh, hundreds of years old. So uh, coming to my part two, I just want to talk a little bit about this descriptive self and uh, the role of, of, of subjectivity, uh, which is uh, quite vague, I know, so I'll try to pin it down a little bit before going into too much detail. Um, I'll, be, I'll be coming to say a bit about uh, how Marcus just describes his experience in life, and you can tell behind so many passages where he says, well, uh, don't be mad at that guy, uh, that he got mad at some guy that day. Uh, like I was saying about when he retorts to himself, well, I'm tired, and so on. So sometimes you have to do a bit of work to pick this out because uh, it's behind the scenes more. It's not what Marcus is foregrounding to himself. Uh, but it's interesting to put together how Marcus uses this language. And in a, a sort of very uh, broad and stipulative way, uh, a lot of how I pick this out is just to look at what he says in the first person and second person to himself uh, in a, a more critical vein, and also just in a sort of experiential vein, describing his states and his experiences. Uh, and I find that there's much more here that's first and second personal than when we were talking in general terms about the normative self, which is quite third personal and objective, and naturally uses these sorts of exercises like the view from above or the view from nowhere uh, to present ideas in objective language. We might be able to use here uh, uh, the very detailed kind of framework that Christopher Gill has argued for uh, in talking about uh, different strains of uh, language about selfhood in Greek philosophy and literature uh, in 1996 and 2006. Um, Gill, as many of you uh, have likely uh, read, uh, picks out a subjective individualist strain of talk about selfhood uh, where we prize or try to realize ourselves as individuals on the one hand, and uh, we express ourselves in first-personal private language with uh, some special access to our own states on the other hand. Uh, and on Gill's view, this is very uh, post-Cartesian talk, and I know his, his view is quite nuanced and 
sophisticated, so that's a crude characterization, but that largely this is more modern way of talking and that scholars who find that way of talking in antiquity are to some extent being anachronistic. And on his view instead, what we find in antiquity much more steadily is uh, what he characterizes as an objective participant kind of model uh, of the depiction of the self. Uh, and in, in this sort of situation, it's fine to talk third personally, uh, for example, about inner dialogue between different parts of my soul. Homeric heroes are a great example of this when they apostrophize their thumos. Uh, and the same goes for lots of philosophical texts, which I'll talk about in a bit more detail in a minute. So on, on Gill's view, this sort of self in dialogue from a third personal perspective, in dialogue with others and in dialogue inside, doesn't demand subjective or individual language. It's perfectly possible to express selfhood uh, in more or less third personal terms. And he's willing to grant that there are some cases, uh, like in the famous debate between Gail Fine and Miles Bernier about uh, Sextus and uh, the Cyrenaics, uh, where you do find subjective language and uh, somewhat Cartesian ideas, uh, but he thinks they're quite rare, if that's fair to say, and that they're certainly not the predominant strain in antiquity. So, uh, having, having said that by way of framing, um, we, in turning to Marcus and asking whether it might be fair to say, as, as I'll be suggesting, that the, the descriptive talk of the self in Marcus at least has a pretty strong subjective element, uh, in coming to that, it, it would be useful to try to prime our intuitions about what we mean by subjectivity, uh, which uh, Gil goes some way towards doing. Uh, and I've put on the, uh, the handout a few different quotes, the first from Sarabji, uh, about what we might mean by a person, uh, someone who has psychological states and does things, by a thinker, uh, when we talk about a thinker, someone who has thoughts, uh, and Sarabji uses this to great effect to develop the idea of an owner uh, of states and actions and a body and bodily characteristics uh, that we could talk about as a self uh, and I think it's, to some extent, though Richard may correct me here, similar to the way that uh, Gill talks about the sort of thin concept of the subject just as a unified and continuing locus of psychological experience, though it's not clear that Gill would be comfortable with talk of an owner. I don't think he is, but Richard knows much more about this than I do, so can correct me in time. Uh, other factors in this uh, sort of thin sense of the person uh, in Gill, for example, are synchronic unity and diachronic unity, unity all at once and over time. Uh, so that seems like a pretty intuitive idea, just a sort of uh, owner of states as a self, uh, a subject who's somehow a unified locus of experience and has some kind of unity now and is the same person today as yesterday and tomorrow, something like this. Um, but there's also a thicker sense uh, of subjectivity, which Gill is especially concerned to resist finding in these ancient texts. Uh, this sort of subjectivity uh, might require many different factors, but to try to give us some stipulative way of talking, uh, we might talk about the following. Uh, indexicality, the awareness that I'm this person right now. Uh, reflexivity, uh, some sort of self-awareness. Uh, Possibly, as Harry Frankfurt suggested, the presence of second-order states or desires that is having desires about my desires. I don't want to not want to get up. I don't just want to get up. Uh, and perhaps especially privileged or incorrigible access to our own states. This is a, a sort of telltale sign, it's argued, of the post-Cartesian self. Uh, or so it, so it can at least be argued. 
And it's these sorts of ideas, if, if this is fair to what uh, Gill is doing, that he uh, sifts different ancient texts uh, for, reflecting on how scholars have found them operative there, and then shows that they're not needed, uh, or at least that they're not all needed, or that they're not needed in the configuration it suggested that they're needed, and that they can be done away with in favor of objective participant talk. Um, so just to give you a few examples to get your head around this, if it's not already familiar, uh, looking at the Alcibiades one. Uh, which, whether by Plato or not, seems like a clear 4th century case of talk about uh, self-reflection, at least, or self-awareness. Uh, Gill offers a case that, well, there's some role for re reflexivity in it, or this kind of reflection on ourselves as selves. Uh, it's not used as fundamental to the essence of personality, so it's not really that basic or important. Uh, again, uh, looking at Cicero's De Finibus 3.16, uh, which has been read in a subjectivist way by Engberg Peterson uh, and others. Gill argues that there's actually no explicit reference there to the ideas of I or the individual subject, uh, and that the notion of appropriation or oikiosis can be explained in strictly objectivist terms, actually a little like Dennett's view of animals as intentional systems today. So again, you could just talk about it from the outside in the third person, uh, and we don't need to use first personal language uh, to explain it, as had previously been suggested. In studying the Fine and Berniate debate uh, about the Cyrenaics and Sexus, Gill recognizes that the interest in privileged access to our own emotions and beliefs and attitudes and so on is present there, uh, so he grants that, but he doesn't see it as really uh, used in any interesting way to make a case for subjective individuation in the way that Descartes would do. So again, sort of like saying about the Alcibiades, Maybe there's some sign of reflexivity here, but it's not really put to use in building a model of the self or anything like this. Uh, and when he comes to Epictetus, which is closest to home, uh, Gill stresses that there's nothing especially individual or positive about individual perspectives in Epictetus's uh, talk about examining our impressions or looking inside ourselves to determine to find our prohiresis or any of this kind of thing, which is close to Marcus's heart, that it might sound self-analytic, but it's not actually requiring of a first personal view. And in fact, the focus on the catechon or what's socially appropriate in Epictetus shows that this too is objective participant. And Marcus comes up in how Gill uh, talks about this in 2006 and quite a few other works since. Uh, for example, he writes, Epictetus' theme of the examination of impressions, like Marcus's or, uh, composition of meditations to himself, is sometimes seen as significant in the history of ideas of selfhood because it implies that introspective, self-related activities have a special significance. Uh, Epictetus' own practice indicates no such priority of inner or reflexive states over interpersonal discourse. And he makes the point that for Epictetus, uh, it's equally important to find out his interlocutor's impressions as his own. Uh, so there isn't a sense that there's some privileged usefulness uh, there in looking uh, inside for information. So that, that seems very fair. And... What I'd just like to suggest about these last passages in Marcus, which I put down on page 7 and page 8, uh, is that, nevertheless, most of uh, the criteria that uh, we just talked through uh, for subjectivity can be found in Marcus, but they're peeled up uh, across, or they cut across, these divisions of the normative and descriptive that I began the paper with. Uh, so that is to say, I think uh, synchronic and diachronic unity, indexicality, reflexivity, self-consciousness, second-order desires, and even a sort of privileged access to our own states can be found there, but in, in different selves, if you like. 
So I, th I certainly think it would be fair to argue, you can tell me if, if I might be overreading this, that in the passages we've seen, we have a clear concern with a unified locus of psychological experience and owner of states. Uh, I think we also see an intense interest in both synchronic and diachronic unity, but they're not givens. They're not in our descriptive selves. They're there in our normative selves. Uh, we see indexicality in Marcus's insistence on living in the present moment. I am this person here now. That's important to him because this person can make changes and make a difference. He's teeming with cases of second-order desires, desires he doesn't want to have or wishes he did have. Uh, but what about the first-person language in general? Uh, I think it is important to Marcus's actual ideas. Uh, I've put some, some examples of first-person language down on the handout, 430, 717, 843, and 913, uh, where he has vivid dialogues in his own voice in the first person about his current experience, uh, typically but not always uh, descriptive of where he is now, not where he wants to be, not the normative person. So, for example, I have all the food of yearning, but I'm not yet faithful to reason uh, in 4.30. In 7.17, when he says, Why, my fantasia, are you doing what you do? Go away in the God's name, the way you came. I have no need of you. I'm not angry with you. Only go away. Uh, 8.43, on a happier note, My joy is if I keep my directing mind pure, looking on all things with kindly eyes. And 9.13, a very happy note, Today I escaped from all bothering circumstances, or rather, I threw them out. They were nothing external, but inside me, just my own hoopalapses, very Marcus point. So certainly here, I think, a clear reflection of sort of uh, inward awareness and reflexivity. But I think that the real home for the phenomenological experiences that uh, are represented as Cartesian, uh, or uh, in the way that uh, Nagel puts it, the, the ones there's something like it's like to be in such a state, something like it's like, that it's like uh, to be afraid or to see yellow, uh, or to feel pain. The home for these, I think, is the second person voice in Marcus, most of all, the person to whom he's speaking, the one in the Epictetan rhetoric who corresponds to the student, his more partial self in the language I talked about before, rather than his more whole, normative or unified self. This self is thirsty for time to relax and read, worried about the opinions of others, uh, lustful, afraid of dying, afraid of harm, uh, vain, and prone to jerk to the puppet strings of impulse. And also prone to talk back to Marcus. Uh, for example, uh, annoyedly saying in 449, well, my bad luck, or in 5-1, one needs rest too. Uh, so some of these examples I put down, 2-2, a very common one, quit your books, no more hankering, 2-3, give up your thirst for books, 2-12, uh, if anyone's frightened uh, of death, this isn't strictly uh, second personal or first personal, but it's clear that the idea is that he's responding to his fear, he's a mere child. Uh, Second person again in 3-4, do not waste the remaining part of your life in thoughts about other people. 3-5, don't be a gabbler, don't be a meddler. 3-7, uh, not craving for solitude or crowds. 3-14, no more wandering. 4-3, will a little fame distract you? 4-18, what ease of mind you gain from not looking at what your neighbor has said or thought or done, suggesting that that's just what he was doing today. Uh, 4-37, you're not yet untroubled or free from fear of harm. 4-49, it's my bad luck. No, it isn't. 5-1, I'm getting up for a man's work. This is the one I like because I've had a hard time getting up in the morning. 5-5, uh, don't you see? Uh, you're still content to lag behind. Uh, does the fact that you have no inborn talent, ouch, uh, oblige you to grumble, to scrimp, to toady, to blame your poor body, to suck up, to brag, to have your mind in such turmoil? No. 5-18, uh, another has the same experience as you. 
764, when you find yourself complaining, say you're giving into pain. Uh, 937, enough of this miserable way of life. Why are you troubled? Make yourself simpler and better. Uh, same talk about wholeness, I think, that I came back to before. 1226, when you fret in any circumstance, you've forgotten that all comes about in accordance with the nature of the whole. And I think that Marcus's descriptive self, as he finds it, is a good case for this kind of subjective person. Uh, while the ideal self, the daimon in him, sets aside these concerns precisely as partial. That's the move to say they're partial. They're not of the whole. Here's some techniques you can use to think about them more holistically. I just finished very briefly uh, by saying that I think there is evidence, but in an interesting way, of the telltale uh, privileged access or incorrigibility case of subjectivity or post-Cartesian subjectivity in Gill's way of framing it. Uh, and uh, this, uh, this sort of thing, I, I don't think I have time to talk about very much, so I'll, I'll say very briefly, I promise. Uh, when he comments in 11.13, for example, uh, that our inner thoughts are open to the God's eyes. Uh, and when he says in 12.2 that God sees all our directing minds stripped of their material vessels, their husks and their dross, uh, his contact is only between his own intelligence and what has flowed from him into those channels of ours. Uh, or in 12.4 uh, when he says, if a God appeared at someone's side, and told him to entertain no internal thought or intention which he wouldn't immediately broadcast outside. He wouldn't tolerate this. Uh, and 12.16, uh, when he says that he can't tell what someone else's psychological states are, when he says in 12.16, presented with the impression that someone has done wrong, how do I know that this was a wrong? How do I know he's not already condemning himself, which is the equivalent of tearing his own face? So he does have that idea, but it's a little different from the Cartesian idea, because what's really important for him is that uh, God can see, and if you achieve this sort of normative wholeness in a way you can see too, you will have this access to your own inner states in the Cartesian way, but it doesn't come for granted. You have to work at it and become a whole uh, to be able to do it. So it's actually, again, something that you have to press for. Uh, I don't think in, I, I do think in all of that that there's good talk about uh, subjectivity cutting across these two cells that I started out with. Uh, I also think there's nothing here that's unrecognizably uh, un unstoical. I think everything in Marcus does seem like it's compatible with Orthodox Stoicism, but we could come back to that, especially Roman Stoicism. And in the end, I'll just say I don't think he's, he's all that pessimistic. So even though he says, don't hope for Plato's utopian republic, but be content with the smallest step forward to this normative uh, condition of sagehood, uh, he does, in some of those first personal examples, have cases where he succeeds. He escapes from bother, uh, he keeps his directing mind pure, uh, and uh, in the end, he seems very much at peace. So I found it uplifting to read Marcus, and thank you for sharing it with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.